everyone. I'm John Schmidt, the senior pastor here at Centerpoint Fellowship. And today we're continuing on in our series entitled Countercultural. Um, just going through this whole last election cycle, it's become very clear that our nation is divided along political lines, but we're also divided along a lot of social issues and cultural issues. And uh, for someone to be a Bible-believing Christian today, how are we supposed to do that, especially in certain parts of our culture where some biblical values are, go against where our culture's headed? How would I live? How would I talk? How would I act if I'm around a bunch of people who don't know anything about God, who don't know the Bible? Maybe I'm uh, with a group of people where nobody even goes to church at all, doesn't even know anybody goes to church. Well, how would I talk to such people? How should I act? That's what this whole series is all about. If I'm going apart, if our culture is going away from God, well, how do I live when I'm hanging close to God? Today, we're going to read a story from the Old Testament about a man named Naaman. Inside your bulletin, you'll find an outline entitled, Naaman Need God, Needed God. And um, if you raise your hand, one of our ushers will bring a pen to you if you didn't get one on the way in. But the idea behind this is we're going to look at a story where a person came from a polytheistic culture, a culture that didn't know anything about the God of the Bible. And when he met some people who did know God, how did they interact with him? And what can we learn? That's what this series is about. And there are a lot of helpful insights today from a marvelous story of the Old Testament, and I'm glad you're here today. Would you have a word of prayer with me? We'll jump right in. Lord, we, uh, in this series, we're looking at stories from the Bible where people had to engage people who didn't know you, and sometimes people who were living in cultures that were openly hostile. And so today, Lord, we're talking about somebody who needed the Lord but didn't know you at all. Well, how did the people, how did your people treat him? And so, Father, I pray that today you'll speak and move me out of the way, that we'll gain some insights on how we can treat friends and neighbors who desperately need you but don't know you. What should we say? How should we live? I pray you'll make these things clear to us. In the name of Christ, I pray. Amen. Point one, Naaman. This is kind of an interesting name but for Naaman. But Naaman was a war hero from a hostile culture who desperately needed God. To give you a little background here, uh, Naaman was from the country of Aram, uh, about 950 B.C., 950 years before Jesus was born in a manger in Bethlehem, the nation of Israel split into north and south. The southern part was called Judah, and the capitalism was in Jerusalem. The northern part was called Israel, and the capital was in Samaria. Well, on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, over here was a kingdom called Aram. And the Arameans and the uh, Israelites would have border skirmishes and fights. At the time we're jumping in this story, it's about 100 years after the nation of Israel split. So this is about 850 B.C. And the kings of Israel made up their mind in order to keep people from making pilgrimage, pilgrimages down south that they would teach them to worship other gods, the gods of the surrounding nations, not just the god of Judah, which they had been told by God to worship only him. And so the kings of this northern kingdom of Israel were trying to go as far away from God as they could. And so God would send prophets to them, uh, people through whom he spoke, people who would clearly remind them, I am your God, you're my people, come back to me. Stop sinning, stop rebelling. But they didn't listen. Well, over here in Aram, the people didn't know much about the Hebrew God at all, the God of the Bible. And so when we jump in the story today, you'll see that they are completely unaware that there is a God who made the universe and can do uh, anything he wants, who can, whom you can pray to, and he can do miracles. 
So as you jump in the story, that's what's going on. And you need to know that Naaman, for this uh, culture here, for the Arameans, he was a decorated war hero. If you're a World War II buff, this would be MacArthur or Patton. Okay? Big deal. Like big, big, big deal of a war hero. So the king of Aram had, a great, had great admiration for Naaman, the commander of his army, because through him the Lord had given Aram great victories. Uh, but though Naaman was a mighty warrior, he suffered from leprosy. Leprosy was a degenerative skin disease, no cure for in the time. Once you got it, it would progress and um, deform you and ultimately kill you. At this time, Aramean raiders had invaded the land of Israel, and among their captives was a young girl who'd been given to Naaman's wife as a maid. Aram and Israel would have border skirmishes, even though they had reached a treaty and during those, some of those border skirmishes, towns would be occupied and the people would be enslaved. And that's what had happened to a young girl. And she ended up in Naaman's household serving his wife. Well, one day the girl said to her mistress, I wish my master would go to see the prophet in Samaria. He would heal him of his leprosy. And there was a prophet by the name of Elisha through whom God did extraordinary miracles. And this girl knew about him. So Naaman told the king what the young girl from Israel had said, go and visit the prophet, the king of Aram told him. I'll send a letter of introduction to you to take to the king of Israel. So Naaman started out carrying his gifts, 750 pounds of silver, 150 pounds of gold, and 10 sets of clothing. That's a lot of coin. It was a lot of cash. The letter to the king of Israel read, "Uh, with this letter, I present my servant Naaman. I want you to heal him of his leprosy. Now, when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes in dismay and said, This man sends me a leper to heal. Am I I God that I can give life and take it away? I can see he's just trying to pick a fight with me. And so the king of Israel, who isn't listening to God and would never listen to one of God's prophets, never even enters his head. All I got to do is contact Elisha, this prophet through whom God does extraordinary miracles, because he doesn't want to talk to Elisha. And so he goes, I know what's going on here. King of Aram wants to start a war with me. And now he's picking a fight. I can't heal this guy. So we're going to jump in the story a little bit, but I want to make a couple of observations. First of all, God loves to use ordinary people to accomplish his purposes. God loves to use ordinary people. It's important to note that God used a servant girl to point a decorated war hero to himself. This guy was a mighty war hero, and he could conquer whole other armies, but he couldn't conquer leprosy. And the person that God had placed in his life was a little servant girl. No one of any particular status. We don't even know her name. Now, John, are you making too much of this? I don't think so. 1 Corinthians 1. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. And he chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. And if you underline no one may boast before him, This is going to come into play uh, big time in Naaman's life because he knows he's a hero and he's got an ego to match. Now look, I don't want to go any too fast on this, so God loves to use ordinary people. There are times when people call me or they'll email me and they say, Oh, John, I just... I wish my brother could talk to you, wish my cousin could talk to you, wish my coworker could talk to you so you could tell them about Jesus because they need to hear about Jesus. And I go, well, you know, if you bring them to worship or something, I'll I'll do my best. And they'll go, no, I mean, I don't know if they'll come or other things like this. And I go, well, then why don't you tell them? And they go, 
I can't tell them. I don't have a seminary degree. I don't have any special training. I'm just an ordinary person. And I love to tell them stories like this, this little girl who worked for Naaman's wife. What were her qualifications? She knew there was a prophet in Israel who could heal him. I wish Naaman would go see him. There's a prophet there by the name of Elisha. God does extraordinary miracles through him. If he goes to him, I know God could heal him. Ordinary people. I mean, what's so interesting is the king of Aram just assumes that the king of Israel, if there was such a guy who could do miracles, he just sends the guy over and says, well, here's a gift, and uh, get your man over there to heal my man. I mean, he would assume if you have a guy like this in your country, certainly you would have him on your staff. He doesn't know that the king of Israel wants nothing to do with him. And we'll get more of that later. And so it takes this servant girl to point him to the prophet, even though the king of Israel won't go to him. Amazing ironies all through this story. That brings us to point B. You and I need to pray for opportunities to point people to God wherever we are. Opportunities. I mean, what have I thought about my life that way? What do I believe that God dropped me down right where I am and he has things for me to do? And there are people in my neighborhood, in my place of work, in my school, in my family, in my sphere of influence that God has specifically put me there to reach out to. This is the way Paul talked. Devote yourselves to prayer with an alert mind and a thankful heart. Pray for us, too, that God will give us many opportunities to speak about this mysterious plan concerning Christ. That's why I'm here in chains. Don't miss that. That's why I'm here in chains. Paul is in prison. He's writing to the people of Colossae. He says, hey, pray for opportunities to share your faith and pray that I'll have opportunities to share my faith, too. I mean, Paul is in prison. So you go, Paul, you're in prison. He goes, I know. Now we can start prison ministry. Isn't that awesome? I mean, who thinks like that? Paul thinks like that. And he says, I want you to think like that. Hey, I'm in this office with all these people, and they're so depressed all the time, and they're all so down all the time. Why would God put me there? I don't know. Maybe to give encouragement and hope? I remember the first job I took when I got out of college. I took this job, and I was calling a friend of mine who had led a Bible study uh, for me in college, and he said, how's it going? I said, I don't know. It's really tough. There's one guy who's an alcoholic, and this other couple, there's a couple that, that is in this office, and they both work there, and I think they're headed for a divorce, and this other person, man, he's just got these money problems and stuff, and the guy goes, John, that's awesome. I was going, what are you talking about? And he goes, remember we were praying that God would put you in a place where he could use you for ministry? Man, this is shooting fish in a barrel. And here I am sitting there thinking, why are these people telling me their problems? And he's reminding me, well, that's what you prayed for. You prayed for an opportunity. Here you go. What if God has placed you and me in places where people need hope, people need encouragement, people need to know where they can find forgiveness? People need to know where they can find answers. New life. Maybe they're afraid of dying. Jesus is a cure for that. Devote yourselves to prayer with an alert mind and a thankful heart. Pray for us, too, that God will give us many opportunities to speak about this mysterious plan concerning Christ. That's why I'm here in chains. Pray that I'll proclaim this message as clearly as I should, live wisely among those who are not believers, and make the most of every opportunity. 
Let your conversation be gracious and attractive so you have the right, right response for everybody. Now, before you turn the page, if I could get you just to open up your outline like this and just open up it flat and then just go up a little bit on the other side under question seven for the discussion questions, there's a quote from Oswald Chambers from a devotional guide called My Utmost for His Highest. It relates to this. And here's what he said. Never allow this thought, I'm of no use where I am, because you certainly can be of no use where you are not. Wherever God has dumped you down in circumstances, pray. Now, if there was ever a true statement, it's that. Well, God can't use me where I am. Well, he sure can't use you where you aren't. I mean, what if you and I did this? And we're sitting there saying, part of this whole series, think about this again. What if we live in a culture that's drifting away from God? What do we do? How do we respond? Well, we look around and say, God, where have you placed me? And if people are drifting away from you, who needs to be pointed back to you? And what's my part? Like a lot of the people who want me to come and talk to their friend, I always write them back and go, you're the one who's earned the right to be heard. You've been there when they were sick. You're the one who meets them for lunch. You're the one who's played golf with them. You're the one who's done all these things. You've earned that right. Why don't we rather come and, why don't you rather come and talk to me and let's pray together and strategize together how you can talk to them. Because there are doors you can walk through I can never walk through. And if we all did that together, my goodness, it would be a powerful testimony for the Lord. God loves to use ordinary people. Could we say that together, please? God loves to use ordinary people. Now turn to the person next to you and say, like you. Turn to the person next to you and say, like you. Yeah. Well, good. It's somebody else. All right, let's move on. No. <laughs> no. It's me. Hey, remember, this is old series. Is we're looking at this story. He used an ordinary little girl who was in an impossible situation. Think how bitter she could have been. Hey, your master has leprosy. Good. I hope it kills him. And she still pointed him to God. I doubt that any of us will ever be in a horrible situation like she was in. And she was still faithful. What about you? What about you? What about me? Point two, Naaman was outraged when Elisha, the man of God, treated him like an ordinary person. So the king tears his robes, which is a sign of grief and despair. Oh, why is the king of Aram picking a fight with me? The story goes on. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes in dismay, he sent this message to him. Why are you so upset? Send Naaman to me. He'll learn there's a true prophet here in Israel. The king's just asking you to send him to me. Send him to me. And so Naaman went with his horses and his chariots, all the king's horses and all the king's men, and he waited at the door of Elisha's house. But Elisha sent a messenger out with this message, go and wash yourself seven times in the Jordan River, and then your skin will be restored and you'll be healed of your leprosy. But Naaman became angry and he stalked away. I thought he'd certainly come out to meet me, he said. I expected him to wave his hand over the leprosy, call in the name of the Lord, of the Lord his God, and heal me. Aren't the rivers of Damascus, the Abana, and the Farpar better than any of the rivers here in Israel? Why should I wash in them and be healed? And so Naaman turned and went away in a rage. But his officers tried to reason with him and said, Sir, if the prophet had told you to do something very difficult, wouldn't you have done it? So you should certainly obey him when he says simply, go and wash and be cured. And so Naaman went down to the Jordan River, dipped himself seven times as the man of God had instructed him, and his skin became as healthy as the skin of a young child's, and he was healed. A couple of observations here. 
We must humble ourselves before God. I mean, I hope you didn't miss this. Elisha is the man of God. He's a prophet of God. The prophets were called to lead the people back to faithfulness, to constantly call them back to faithfulness. And that's why watching how he treats Naaman is something we need in a culture that's departing. How do we point him back? The little girl told him to go to Elisha. Elisha's telling him what he needs. For him to get God's blessing in his life, he needs to humble himself. He needs to literally get off his high horse, literally, and get in the water. Naaman came to his house, all the ribbons and medals on his chest. He's a decorated war hero. And out comes a servant and go, you Naaman? Yeah, uh, Elisha says go wash in the Jordan seven times. You'll be clean. See ya. What? I am Naaman. He should at least come out and see me. I expected him to go through a ceremony, to wave his hand over the spot, say some magic words, whatever it is. And heal me. That's what's befitting me. He goes and tells me to go and bathe in the Jordan River. It's a dirty little river compared to the uh, Abana. The Abana was called by the Greeks the Golden River. It came down and cascaded down the mountains, this gorgeous river. And the Jordan didn't look anything like it. And he completely forgot what he was asking. Remember what brought him there? Leprosy. He couldn't conquer leprosy. He had no idea how to conquer leprosy. And so he's coming to the man of God and he's saying, hey, I want this healed and I want it healed on my terms. This is the way I want it done. I want this kind of production. I want you to do this and this and that's what I want. And Elisha could see that the biggest thing he'd struggled with was pride. So he didn't even go out to meet him, sent a servant to do it. Because he wanted him to know, no, no, no. If you come to God, you come to God and you worship Him as Lord. You don't give God orders. You bow down before Him. And Naaman apparently was used to giving orders. Pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall, Proverbs 16, 18. Pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. Anybody else found out that's true besides me? The rest of you are too prideful. Okay, we'll move on. No, look, it's true. If you haven't found it out yet, you will. This guy thought he could stand up and be something in front of God. And Elisha was going, well, the first thing is, if you're going to get right with God, then you need to humble yourself and admit you need God's help. And this is too big for you. Why can't I just go wash wherever I want? I mean, people try to do that now, too. Why do I have to do what the Bible says? Why can't I just do what I want to do and call that good? Why do I have to read these scriptures? I mean, it's a similar sort of thing. Why do I have to go God's way? Well, Jesus is the one who died on the cross for our sins. He's the one through whom we have eternal life. There is no other way. I go his way or I don't go. He's the way, the truth, and the life. And I come to him humbly as a sinner and say, I need you to forgive me. Peter and Paul both talk this way. All of you serve each other. This is 1 Peter 5. Serve each other in humility. God opposes the proud, but he favors the humble. So humble yourselves under the mighty power of God, and at the right time he'll lift you up in honor. So we need to humble ourselves before God, and that was obvious that that was Naaman's big problem. And finally, his advisors all said, his officers said, come on, if you asked you to do something hard, you'd go do it. This is simple. You won't even try? And what sense does that make? And that brings us to point B. We can't earn God's grace. 
I mean, he was fine with something hard because that would make him look good. He's Naaman. And we could fall into the same thing. And I, I've read this story with people that go, I can't believe somebody would be so stubborn and so prideful. I mean, just, what's the hard part about dipping a river? Have you ever seen anything like that? And I go, I see this all the time. And they go, you do? And I go, oh, yeah. A couple come in and their marriage is in trouble. And we read the scriptures and it's pretty clear that one of them needs to say they're sorry and the other one needs to compromise. I'm not apologizing to him. I'm not compromising with her. Forget that. If I'd have told them, look, you need to buy, what do we need to do to save our marriage? You both need to buy plane tickets. You need to fly to Africa. You need to climb to the top of Kilimanjaro, get a bucket of snow and bring it back. And then your marriage will be fine. Okay, we'll do it. Do we need to do that? No. You need to apologize and you need to quit being stubborn. Not doing that. I cannot tell you how many times this same sort of pride can creep into my life and into yours. All I have to do is apologize. All I have to do is meet someone halfway. I'm not doing it. And you know it would be great if we have somebody like that in our lives who's gone off in pride and has been out of shape? We can be just like those officers pointing them back and going, Seriously? You can't say you're sorry? I mean, if God wanted you to do something hard, you'd do it. Why can't you just apologize and admit you're wrong? Are you that prideful? Hmm. This is exactly the same sort of thing that you and I go through in our lives. And it's exactly what our friends who are drifting away from God need to hear. Come back to him. We have many friends who need God. God's placed them all around us. They may not be struggling with leprosy, but they're struggling with loneliness. They might be struggling with an addiction. They might be terrified of dying. They don't have any real friends. Who's going to point them back? Who's going to let them know what God says? Who's going to say, hey, you don't need to be prideful about this. We're all sinners. Let's come. So point B was we can't earn God's grace. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. God saved you by his grace when you believed. You can't take credit for this. It's a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we've done, so none of us can boast about it. And there's the boasting part again. And we come to Christ because we need Christ. We come to Christ because we need forgiveness. We come to Christ because we need him to make us whole. We come to Christ because he needs to fill the gaps in our lives that can't be filled with anything else. And it's by grace. The ground at the foot of the cross is level. We all come. And Elisha knew that. The war hero is no closer to, accepting, to finding God's grace because of all of his medals than the servant girl. We come. And that should be good news to us today. If it's good news to you today that all of us can come to Christ no matter who we are, no matter what we've done, would you say amen? amen. That's the good news. But the flip side is, let's not drag any pride in here. Because that's what's hard is, well, I need Christ as much as the next guy. And sometimes I'd like to look at the next guy and say, well, I'm better than him. And that's not going to work. We come to God because we need him. Point three, Naaman returned to his polytheistic culture, committed to worshiping God alone. Naaman came from that Aramean culture where they had lots of gods. The chief god they worshiped was a god named Rimen. 
And he was the God of thunder and lightning, kind of like Thor, that kind of thing. Well, then Naaman and his entire party went back to find the man of God. And they stood before him, and Naaman said, Well, now I know there's no God in all the world except in Israel. So please accept a gift from your servant. But Elisha replied, As surely as the Lord lives whom I serve, I will not accept any gifts. And though Naaman urged him to take the gift, Elisha refused. All right, but please allow me to load two of my mules with earth from this place, and I'll take it back home with me. From now on, I will never again offer burnt offerings or sacrifices to any other god except the Lord. However, may the Lord pardon me in this one thing. When my master, the king, goes into the temple of the god Rimmon to worship there and leans on my arm, may the Lord pardon me when I bow too. Go in peace, Elisha said. And so Naaman started home again. Two observations. A, we can't buy God's grace. We just talked about we can't earn it and we can't buy it. And Elisha didn't want him to be confused. Hey, you were clean. Okay, now I give you a gift. He didn't want him to go home and go, well, you know, if you go pay this guy money, if you pay money, it's like a vending machine, then God will give you a miracle. He goes, no, no, no. You understand, this is God's grace. The same thing happened many centuries later in the same chunk of real estate around Samaria when Peter and John and others had been sharing the gospel. Peter and John placed their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. There was a man in Samaria at the time by the name of Simon the Sorcerer. He was a magician of note, and he liked the trick. When he saw Peter and John lay their hands on people and pray for them, they received the Holy Spirit. And so when he saw this, uh, that the Spirit was given with the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money and said, Give me also this ability so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. And Peter answered, May your money perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. It's a, uh, in theological terms, this is even Simon's name is attached to it, it'd be the, the false doctrine of simony, that you can buy God's favor, that you can buy his forgiveness with money. Uh, next October 31st, it'll be uh, 500 years since Martin Luther nailed those 95 theses to the door on the chapel at Wittenberg. And part of that was he objected to the church at the time had been selling what were called indulgences. If you gave money for the building of St. Peter's Basilica, then you could have uh, an indulgence given on behalf. The, the Pope could pray for your loved one, departed one, and then they would be forgiven. So money equals forgiveness. And Martin Luther wrote a number of those items just regarding that. He protested them, which is why he was known as a Protestant or a Protestant. And he said, we need reform, which is why it was called the Reformation. Who knew all these words made sense? Okay, but that's the idea. And you and I would say, well, of course you can't do that. Well, Naaman thought he could. There'd be people in our culture who don't know anything about God. They don't read the Bible. And they might think, well, God will accept me because I'm better than other people. No, you can't earn God's grace. Well, here, let me give you some money for that, and then I can buy God's grace. No, you come to God, you humble yourself, and say, I'm a sinner in need of God's forgiveness. And that's why we come. That's how we come. The good news is then it's open for everyone. The hard part is we have to let go of our pride. And finally, God must have first place in our lives. It's really interesting. Here was this war hero from a culture that didn't know anything about God. 
And man, when he left, he experienced one miracle. He said, now I know there's no other God. I will serve him forever. Yet the people of Israel, they had seen miracle after miracle after miracle in their history, and they only wanted to chase after every other God. If there's anything that should be a challenge to us, it's the whole idea to stand firm as Christians at a time when our culture is drifting away. This is all the more reason for us to stand firm. I talked to someone um, just the other day, and they live in another part of the country, and I said, man, you just don't know what it's like. Most of my friends, they don't think like we think. And uh, they don't accept the things of God. And I go, yeah, but what an incredible time to be a Christian then, to stand up and point them back. Here's Peter again. But in your heart, set apart Christ as Lord. Give him first place. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience, so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. I hope you've noticed all the ironies in this. A little girl was able to lead a mighty war hero to a place where he could find God. She just had the opportunity and took advantage of it. When Naaman came, he forgot that he had no cure for leprosy on his own, and it was only because Elisha was doing the right thing that he realized he needed to humble himself. So the right way to reach out to the mighty hero was to tell him was to treat him like everybody else. And Naaman, the guy who's going back to a culture where they worship all kinds of gods and thunder and lightning and sun and moon and stars, he said, no, there's only one God. And yet the people who knew all about the one God wanted to worship all the other gods. Well, what's it going to be for you and me? God is first. His grace can't be bought and it can't be earned. It's a free gift. And we receive it when we humble ourselves and confess our sins. You and I can be the people who point people back toward that. Come to him today. If he asks you something incredibly hard, you do it. Why won't you come when it's as simple as surrendering your life to him? Would you pray with me, please? Father, the gospel is simple enough that a child can understand it. But it's hard enough that people of pride won't do it. And so, Father, we know this. I pray, Lord, that we would not fight you when you ask us to surrender areas of our lives. I pray, Lord, that we would not be stubborn. And so, Father, we just come before you this morning, and we thank you for the opportunities that we have all around us. I pray that you will give us opportunities to point people toward you. We live in a culture where many people don't know you. They don't know anything more about you than Naaman did. And we get to be the ones who point them in the right direction. And I pray that we will. I pray that you'd remind us, Lord, that we need a Savior. We need your wisdom. And we can't do this on our own. And God, I pray that we will be faithful and call people to righteousness call people to humility, and point people toward you. I thank you for Elisha. I thank you for the servant girl. And I thank you for Naaman's advisors who just reasoned with him. I pray that we can do the same things. And you'll give us courage that you love to use us right where we are, because that's where we are. 
and you know all about it. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.